Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We have what we've, I say dragged, but we, he did it himself. Zach has dragged himself, kicking and screaming, into the 20th century for some military history today, haven't you, Zach? I have. Hello, boss. It's good to see you. It, this is a bit of an odd one because I've got two bosses in the room with me. I I've know. got you as podcast boss. And then we are joined by Professor Kendrick Oliver, who is the head of history at the University of Southampton. So he's, in effect, my other boss. Is that why you're wearing um, a shirt with a collar? And you've had yeah, a I, I, I even had a shave. <laughs> Just just for you guys. So I've made the effort. Um, not that anybody can see that. That's a great comment to make. on. Contrary to popular belief, Zach does actually need to shave. <laughs> just because he looks like a four-year-old doesn't mean he actually is. But anyway, Kendrick is the author of a number of brilliant books looking at American history, including The My Lai Massacre in American History and Memory, and To Touch the Face of God, The Sacred, The Profane, and The American Space Programme. He's going to be talking to us today about the Vietnam War, something that you've probably seen from, I don't know, Apocalypse Now or Platoon, but which really is far more complex than you would ever believe by watching the film. Kendrick, it's great to see you. Hello. Um, I hope I've said enough nice things to placate my, my just about, other boss. Just about enough, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? Um, I Yes, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Nobody likes a crawler, Zach. Rain it in, rain it in. Yeah, all right then. Uh, <laughs> Although I'm now looking at this thing thinking, why are we doing the Vietnam War and not the space programme? That would be awesome. So we'll just have to have Kendrick back again. See, this was the plan. Really, you went with the Vietnam War, the hint of a space programme, and, and I knew you'd, you'd want him you back for more. You mentioned rockets to me that I'd be sold, didn't you? Absolutely. Should we start? We probably should, shouldn't Great. we? Um, let's, let's take this back to the basics, shall we? Inevitably. The conflict in Vietnam, how does it start? I know that's a very kind of simple question, but it's an important one. So how, how do we get to a point where there is a war in Vietnam? Um, so I guess we have to start with French colonialism in Indochina, which in the sort of interwar period basically encompasses um, modern day Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. Um, and, you know, it's a pretty horrible colonial regime. Um, uh, probably as you can imagine, and, and it sort of helps to sort of stimulate the growth of sort of Vietnamese nationalist networks. Some of those networks have links to, to um, the Soviet regime in in, um, in Moscow. Ho Chi Minh, who's probably the most well known of these um, nationalist leaders, spent some time in Moscow. Um, but you know the, the nature of the kind of French colonialism means there's quite a lot of sort of reasons, local, entirely local reasons, indigenous reasons why you'd be kind of um, you might want to kind of resist or be opposed to, to to the French colonial regime. And what happens basically, the Second World War unsettles things quite a lot because the the, the French colonial regime in Indochina aligns itself to the Vichy regime um, in um, France. Um, and essentially rules Indochina on behalf of the Japanese until about 1945, when the, the, the Japanese overthrow that French colonial regime. Um, and so we have a sort of situation where French colonial authority has been sort of doubly eviscerated. It's been eviscerated by the Germans in Europe, but it's also been eviscerated by, the, by the, the Japanese in Asia, whilst the Japanese, as we know, are also on the way out. Their kind of empire is, is um, uh, uh, retreating. And that creates a kind of vacuum which many different kind of actors are seeking to, to, to fill. So you have the Viet Minh, 
uh, and other kind of nationalist groupings in, in um, Vietnam itself. You have the Free French who are um, uh, under, under Charles de Gaulle, um, who are seeking to sort of, you know, establish themselves as the kind of the one true French government and are interested in, the, in, in maintaining or resurrecting a kind of imperial presence. Um, and the United States is the kind of great power that has, has the, the, the sort of authority and the power to decide who's going to get to do what. Does it want to kind of buttress the, the reputation of the, of the um, uh, de Gaulle regime by, by sort of licensing de Gaulle's aspiration to, to, for a re-establishment of French empire? Or does it want to kind of align itself with the aspirations of, of the kind of decolonizing um, world? But this is, of course, just one of the thousands of problems that are crossing the desk of American policymakers um, at this point. They're, ref- they, you know, they're really kind of wrestling with, with, with uh, you know, a rapidly changing um, world as, as, you know, Ger- Germany is, you know, defeated and the Japanese are heading towards defeat um, too. And we think, you know, Theodore, uh, Franklin Roosevelt is, is, is sort of hostile to, to US, um, to, to, to French colonialism, um, but his successor, uh, when, when Roosevelt dies, Harry Truman is much less experienced, doesn't know and really what to, what's going on here. And, and he ends up sort of defaulting to basically what the kind of Europeanists in the US State Department want, which is to let the French back in, um, uh, facilitated by, by British forces. Um, and so basically for a period of a year, to cut the long story short, 1945 and 1946, there's this sort of period of tension when you have the French coming back in, um, the French colonial regime seeking to establish itself, and the Viet Minh in particular, um, uh, there basically kind of there's this sort of debate and attention about what what post-war French colonialism in Indochina is going to look at. Is it look like is it going to allow aspirations for self-government um, or not? And you know, uh, uh, and what happens basically is that a war breaks out at the end of, of, of 1946. Once it becomes fairly clear that the French colonial regime is not terribly interested in in, in accommodating um, uh, Vietnamese aspirations for self-government. So this isn't the first. So by the time we get to the early 60s or the mid 60s and America comes into this, this isn't a sudden interest in this region. You've already pointed out that even at the beginning of World War Two, at the end of World War Two, they are actively involved in trying to shape how things progress in Southeast Asia. And and they've been involved in the Korean War as well, haven't they? So. How does this develop? How does America's interest in this region develop to the point that they get involved in Vietnam? Sure. So um, basically by 1949, the war is essentially a bit of a stalemate. The the French haven't managed to defeat the Viet Minh, um, but the Viet Minh are sort of operating in the shadows. They don't don't have access to the major cities and and it looks like it's going to be a long haul. And basically the fall of China changes everything. The fall of China in in, in late 1949 changes everything. Um, uh, The Americans are much more um, interested in in Indochina because obviously there's been this huge change in the kind of geopolitical landscape as a result of of China falling to to, to communism. Um, Whereas the Viet Minh have access to China now as a kind of strategic hinterland for for their own um, uh, aspirations. Stalin, who has paid very little interest to the Viet Minh before, agrees to kind of recognize the Viet Minh as the Democratic Republic of, of, of Vietnam. And so in the wake of that, you get the US giving aid to the French, um, and the Chinese giving aid to the Viet Minh. And the, and the war basically enters a new stage from about sort of 1950 um, onwards, where it's really of interest to the, to the major post-war powers, albeit one that's kind of simmering at a, at a kind of lower level of intensity to the Korean War. Um, you know, we don't have US, direct US troop um, involvement in, in Vietnam at this point in the, in the way that you do with Korea. And that lasts to about 1955, uh, uh, 54, when... Um, uh, the French are getting pretty exhausted. There's uh, a siege of the French garrison at Dien Bien Phu um, uh, in, no- in northern Vietnam. And that kind of results in the Geneva Conference of 1954, which produces a division of the country into a communist north and a non-communist um, uh, south. And the Americans um, are then trying to sort of work out what they do with this new landscape. Do they want to support the non-communist government of, of Nodin Ziem? Um, in, in the South, which has many problems of its own. And basically, they only make that decision in the spring of 1955, when uh, ZM seems strong enough, he's defeated some key local opponents, and he seems strong enough, therefore, to, to sort of ally with. 
Um, uh, and it's then that they start supporting him properly. They start giving him economic aid. They start giving him military aid. Um, they start announcing that he's the kind of miracle man of, 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 of Southeast uh, uh, Asia. He seemed like he could be a genuine competitor to the Viet Minh, the Democratic Republic of, of Vietnam in, 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 in the North. And so what they're hoping for at that point is the same sort of semi-permanent arrangement as they've got in, in, in Korea. There's a, non, there's a non-communist South, there's a communist North. Um, uh, they can ignore the issue of reunification um, and just, just support um, the ZM regime in, in, in the South. Um, of course, this means that the North Vietnamese have their own kind of decision to make as well, because you know, their aspiration has always been for unification. Um, do you accept that you've just got this kind of fait accompli where they just have to sort of focus on what they're doing in the North, or do they continue to try and um, you know, take, over the, take over the South? Do they keep hold of that um, uh, goal? And knowing that if they go for a military insurgency in the South, it's going to precipitate American military involvement, or is always likely to. Um, and basically, just ZM makes the decision for them. In the late 1950s, ZM starts repressing communists um, in South Vietnam. Um, uh, he also stimulates local opposition to his regime. Um, uh, uh, and, and basically, you have this kind of uprising taking place in, in, in South Vietnam against the ZM regime. And the, 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 the North Vietnamese have to make a decision at this point because it seems to be escaping their control. Um, you have all these people sort of rebelling against ZM, but they but they may not be attached to, to North Vietnam. They may not be these sort of, um, they may not belong to the revolution in quite the same way. So they have to quickly sort of announce their support for revolutionary activity in, in, um, uh, in, in the South in order to kind of retain authority over, over the revolution. So an armed insurgency begins, Northern volunteers start coming down, um, but it's really essentially a Southern phenomenon at this, at, at this point. Um, and it's pretty successful. The U.S. gives some increase, massively increases the aid to, to the ZM regime in, in 1962. But the insurgency is spreading. The ZM regime, um, its kind of horizon of control shrinks. There's an increase in political opposition, particularly from Buddhists. Um, there's dissent in the military. ZM's regime is overthrown. Um, uh, you know, about a month before Kennedy gets assassinated in, in late 1963. But the chaos continues. And so we end up with this period in 1964, 1965, when U.S. policymakers are kind of wrestling with this decision. Do you give up South Vietnam as a kind of basket case, as a dead loss? You know, they, they've already put a lot of aid into it. There's no um, political stability in the country. Or do you think the solution to this is to go in with your own forces? You stabilize the situation um, using U.S. military forces. And the Johnson administration decides to go in. Um, it has these kind of ideas of credibility. It's what the Allies would like because they they would like you know, um, the United States to perform a kind of support for for Allies in trouble, even if actually most Allies don't really want the United States to go in to South Vietnam. They think there are more pressing problems that America has to deal with. Um, and Johnson and his advisors are concerned with their own kind of personal and political credibility um, too. The advisors are the ones that supported Kennedy or that were advised Kennedy, and they made a series of decisions that were sort of escalating and therefore they're, they, they're kind of baked into this issue. Johnson is, you know, he has a certain amount of machismo. Um, he doesn't want to be the first president to sort of lose a war or, or, to, or, to, or to leave South Vietnam and, and, and risk a kind of conservative critiques from that. And so they make a, you know, they make a decision to send ground troops in. So when they make that decision, how popular is the war initially because there are two ways of looking at this one is you know look to what happened in the korean war a conflict there that leads to a stalemate nothing really changes the flip side of course is that america has been for a long time wrestling with its own concerns about communism and internal threats to communism so which side kind of wins out in this discussion of whether or not at, at the moment that the the americans are starting to fight this is or is not a good idea it's really difficult to say that it's popular in the sense that the um, most Americans at that point won't know where Vietnam is on the map. Um, and certainly in the period from you know, 1964 through to early 65, when the kind of the question of what are we going to do is, is, is really alive in, in political circles, at, at, at least, um, newspapers, senior politicians, including democratic politicians, are really quite ambivalent about what 
what to do. And they they see South Vietnam and they don't see much evidence of sort of hope that anything's going to go well there, um, even if you do send uh, troops. The public doesn't really know. Um, so I think one can make the case that the Lyndon Johnson had the political capital at this moment having you know taken over from a, a sort of uh, 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 a dead pre- an assassinated president um he's on his way to a landslide victory in 1964 he has the political capital to go the other way it would involve a cost there would undoubtedly be complaints from from right wingers um about you know stepping away from south vietnam but he he could sell that it would be perfectly possible for him to sell that, um, uh, you know, to to the American people as a, as a sort of sensible decision to make. Once the commit once the commitment is made and they start sending ground troops um, over the sort of spring and summer of nineteen sixty five, there is a kind of rally around the flag um, phenomenon that, as you can imagine, does fade in time as these phenomena tend to. But it's also worth pointing out that support for maintaining the commitment um, is quite enduring. Um, through the 1960s, um, the decision when you look at polls on on the question on the question they ask two sort of questions. One is, you know, was the decision to go to to, to war a mistake? And quite a lot of people will say it was. So the, the actual decision to go to war is regretted. Um, but the need to stay, which is a slightly different question, is still a kind of feature of the political um, uh, of, of relatively mainstream political sentiment. I once you're in, you need to see it through. And people are kind of haunted by the idea of a messy withdrawal. There's also that just, you know, the longer you're in, the more blood and treasure you sink into this. There's all those sort of sunken costs which need to be redeemed, um, hopefully by success. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about Vietnam is, is that the, 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 the fragility of the sentiment supporting going in, but the enduring nature of the sentiment to persevere with it once they're in. Is that because people are invested in this concept of domino theory and, you know, you can't let somewhere else fall? Or is it just, you know, blood has been, American blood has been spilt in this war and we therefore need that sacrifice to mean something in terms of an end result? Um, I, to some extent, both. I mean, it's difficult to disaggregate, you know, what it, polls don't often tell us exactly why people want to, you know, support the, the war. But I, I, I suspect that, you know, obviously the the Cold War um, ideas that surround the kind of Cold War ideas of the domino theory, ideas of, of credibility, ideals of ideas of, of, sort of national reputation, you know, do have an impact upon the way in which people think. But there's also just a sort of sense in which we, we, we've been in this now. Um, and, you know, my son and my brother has gone to, to um, you know, gone to Vietnam and, and um, are we just going to sort of, you know, abandon Make that sort of whatever sacrifice they've made, make it, you know, just 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 retreat and and and, and cancel out whatever that was worth. And I think that counts for quite a lot too. So, in terms of when we look at the U.S. military and the Viet Cong, there's this perception, isn't there, of David versus Goliath? But as we know, the war doesn't inf- unfold in a way that you'd expect. Looking at the forces on paper, why wasn't the USA successful in the conflict? Is it the terrain, the strategy, the wider political decisions making, or is there as a combination of all of those things? Yeah, it's all those things. Yeah. Um, that's a simple answer. But I mean, <laughs> the, the the terrain is not the sort of terrain that the US really likes fighting. Um, it's not responsive to what we might call kind of capital intensive forms of warfighting. That is where you get machines and heavy munitions and things like tanks and aeroplanes um, and artillery to do the work of, of, of sort of um, uh, platoons of, 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 of soldiers. Um, you know, it's not a flat landscape like the plains of, of Europe. It's not or, or like the Gulf. Um, the, the desert in, in, in the Gulf in a later conflict. Um, and the Johnson administration, for all that it does, you know, increase draft calls and, and gets more people to, to, you know, we have half a million troops in Vietnam by, by 1968. It wants to generally avoid a kind of personnel intensive war. It wants to avoid calling up the reserves. It wants to avoid widening the draft as much as it can, because it knows that that's going to make the war unpopular. It's going to make the war very costly. The, the great society programs at home are going to be gutted. Um, and so it tries to basically make Vietnam a place where it can successfully apply its firepower. And, and you know, as if it were kind of flattening the terrain, um, it creates these things called free fire zones where it, you know, it moves the civilian population out of those zones so it can fire on, it can do whatever it likes in terms of dropping bombs and artillery into those uh, areas. It strips the forest, as we know, with defoliants and, and um, 
Uh, and all of that, of course, comes at an enormous cost to South Vietnamese uh, society, whilst in many ways also reducing the South Vietnamese support for the kind of American, what's become by this point an American client regime in, in um, South Vietnam. The South Vietnamese government is basically presiding over the destruction of its own society, and it's never going to attract much more than um, you know, temporary support or support, basically support from people who are in, in that regime too deep to have any kind of way out. Um, to have any alternative. Um, this doesn't mean that the, the kind of insurgency is lovely either. It's engaged in, in acts of terrorism. Um, and it's undoubtedly, it's, it's undoubtedly affected by American firepower, the, the ability of the United States to, to, to sort of unleash all of this upon, upon the um, Vietnamese countryside disrupts the momentum of the revolution quite a lot. If you're looking at the kind of revolution in 1964, 1965, they're pretty hopeful of a quick end to all of this. Um, and then the Americans come in and they have to start thinking about a time frame of, you know, a victory in three, four or five years time. And that just that takes quite a lot of momentum. It has an impact upon um uh, uh, morale. It makes leads to decisions like the 1968 um, Tet Offensive, for example, which involves a massive overestimation of, of, of domestic South Vietnamese support for the um, uh, for the revolution in South Vietnamese cities. So it's not like the American military isn't causing the revolution problems, um, but it's also the case that the Americans find it very difficult to to, to move out of this kind of catch twenty two situation. Is that the more that they try and apply firepower to the situation, the, the further they almost become from their, from their goal. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Is there an appreciation of that amongst policymakers that, you know, you're, you're obliterating these people's landscapes and then at the same time trying to get them to align with a political ideal that you are supporting? Does, does that compute with people? Um it, it, it does for some. And there is a, you know, there is a division of opinion within the US military, um, uh, certainly in, as the, as the, in the first sort of year of the, the major commitments, so 65 to 66, that you, do we go for pacification, which is the idea that you hold on to territory, particularly around the sort of the, the cities and, and on, on, along the coast, and you protect the people and you try and build up the, the sort of infrastructure and you bind them to the regime by, um, you know, proving the value of the regime to their own lives. Um, or do you try and destroy the enemy? And the choice that's made is to try and destroy the enemy, to try and destroy the um, in, in insurgency. So it's, it's sort of reaching for a military solution to, uh, as opposed to what we might regard as a sort of social or political um, solution. And so there is, a, there is a debate within the US military at this point. The Marines are quite keen on pacification. The US Army under General William Westmoreland um, uh, doesn't think it has the time for pacification to work. Pacification is hard. It involves people having to do things that they're not really trained to do, um, whereas soldiers are trained to fight. So send them out into the countryside and get them to sort of kill people. Um, rather crudely, that's that's what what um, uh, their mission is. And so Westmoreland puts all his money, as it were, in, in the kind of search and destroy attritional um, uh, basket. And you were talking about the regime, and I do want to dwell on the politics a bit more here because it is so key. What kind of regime are, are the USA supporting in Saigon? Because you think about figures like Madame Nu, who becomes, you know, in many cases, sort of almost a, a cover person um, for, for the South Vietnamese regime. She's not a particularly benevolent person to have really associated with the USA in any sense. Um, so, you know, what kind of, what are we dealing with here in terms of personalities and, and their decision-making process? So it's it's not a very nice regime. That is that is right. It's just not, it's not well populated with liberal humanitarians. That's um, the case. But look at most post-colonial client regimes of this period, you know, and they're, they're often pretty nasty. South Korea's a police state for, you know, uh, quite a long period. There are massacres in, in Indonesia. The Philippines under Ferdinand Marcos, um, you know, also 
not a particularly kind of uh, uh, a poster child for um, uh, you know liberal government. Um, so in that sense, sort of South Vietnam doesn't um, you know stand out too much. I don't think, despite figures like Madame Nu and and, um, uh, and North Vietnam is also unlovely in, in many in many respects. Civil wars are tend to be kind of vicious and that's to some extent what we're dealing with here you know especially when they're especially vicious when both sides have some access to, to, to sort of superpower arsenals um in terms of the sort of ZM regime um you know historians have argued about this some some see ZM as 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 um you know fatally inept um inauthentic authoritarian he's unwilling to sort of broaden his base um uh, by involving people beyond his own family and therefore you know it's a very shallow regime in terms of its it's the 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 sort of horizon of its political support um he's catholic and the nation's essentially sort of buddhist um uh, and you know according to these more critical historians he's basically sort of uninterested or, or distant from from the the sort of an understanding of the real needs of his people other historians however, have been a bit more sympathetic arguing that he's pretty much doing an impossible job south vietnam at the moment that he takes over in sort of 54, 55, is a basket case. Um, uh, you know, it ha- it's it's not a um, it's not a society or a, a, you know a political system that you um, that it's going to be very easy to build much out of. And he actually does wrestle some kind of order and authority, some degree of order and authority out of it. Um, uh, he pers- tries to pursue a, a kind of mo- a model of modernization, um, and you know until. You get this kind of combination of armed insurgency um, and sort of increased American expectations um, following their kind of injection of aid. Um, and that and, and those twi- twin things kind of do for him, according to this sort of way of thinking about the, the ZM uh, regime. Um, personally, um, I'm not sure he was up to it, uh, but it's difficult to identify someone else who was um, in that um, politics at that. Point. Although that's partly because ZM himself didn't exactly foster the careers of, of political rivals, so there wasn't going to be. <laughs> this is a war that drags on um, from one US administration to another, isn't it? And there's even like a famous satirical cartoon where it shows each, each successive president just passing the blame onto the guy before. How bad is it, the buck passing, when it comes to Vietnam? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a difference because you, you, um, you know, Johnson invokes Kennedy when um, making the decisions uh, uh, for war, even though Kennedy himself was was much more hesitant about sending the idea of sending ground troops to... to Long to, dead as well, isn't he? Um, well, I mean, the, so that's that's it's sort of interesting. So Kennedy obviously dies at the end of 1963. Yeah. Um, and you could see the whole of 1964 as being the sort of the, the time when the Johnson administration is wrestling with the what next question. And when it comes to sort of trying to justify that, Johnson will often make reference to, to sort of Kennedy as, as, you know, what I'm doing was in line with with Kennedy's commitment to South Vietnam, uh, even if that, at that point that commitment didn't involve US ground troops. Um, uh, Nixon, meanwhile, when he comes in in 1969, likes to refer to the war um, as a, you know, once it becomes clear that this war is not terribly popular, likes to refer to the war as a kind of democratic as, as a war that the Democrats have got America into, um, even if he was vice president of, Eisen, you know, he was Eisenhower's vice president during the 1950s when the first decisions in favour of the ZM regime were being made. Um, uh, you know, so, yes, as a means of claiming the support of precedent, but also as a means of, uh, as a way of explaining how you're clearing up the mess uh, left by others. History is a kind of resource for um, these these presidents, but it's also a way for them to avoid thinking about um, the situation that they were actually in and and how to get out of it in that particular moment, um, which can be a danger for historians too. That you know we sort of accept that historians are that, that presidents were too kind of bound by circumstance, um, too bound by past patterns. Whereas in fact, you know maybe they had the power to change those circumstances. Johnson had the power to decide not to go to war in 1964 and 1965. Nixon had the power to decide to, to, to bring the troops home in 1969 rather than you know 1973. And so I think it's quite important to recognize that the that when presidents talk about precedent and what other people have done and the situation that they, they've inherited, that that's sometimes a way 
of explaining why they're not creating changes that they actually have the power to to enact. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So what kind of effect does that have? Because it, it creates a very confused picture, does it not? For people to say, well, you know, I, I've got no choice. You know, this, this is something that's been lumped upon me by a previous administration, and, and now I'm just trying to muddle my way through. And we elect politicians fundamentally to make difficult decisions. So... When you have this mounting death toll, when you have events such as we'll come on to, like the My Lai massacre, and you have these, these policymakers and people as high as the president themselves saying, well, but mm, is it really something that I, you know, my hands are tied here? How does this all kind of come together in terms of creating what becomes a, a very unpopular conflict in the eyes of the American people? Um, so... Um, it doesn't really come together, <laughs> is the um, answer to that. You know, yes, the war becomes progressively more unpopular. Um, although, as I said, the, the the slope of decline is shallower than you might think um, in terms of its, its its popularity. But what we have to recognise is that you, when you when you see those sort of poll figures for that, that measure popularity, unpopularity, was it right to go to the war? Do you do you support the president's policies? That you have to unpack those because different people think in different ways and they're rationalising their answers in different ways. So the dis, the distaste of a college student for a conflict that he might be drafted to to fight in um, is different from the distaste of a returning veteran who comes back to an economy in recession and wonders what why he made the sacrifice that he did. Uh, it's different from the businessman who's worried about the um, tax increases to pay for the war, the inflationary effects of the war. It's different from the foreign policy expert who's concerned about this being a distraction from other kind of key um, uh, priorities. It's different from the conservative who thinks that um, the war is being fought for, you know, with too many uh, restraints. You know, and about one fifth of Americans, um, you know, are willing to contemplate the use of nuclear weapons in in Vietnam. Uh, you know, when asked. So you can have people who want the war to be over, who also hate the anti-war movement um, and want an amplification of military force to do the job. Um, and Nixon is a smart person and he knows this and he knows that he could use this. Um, uh, you know, so I think I think the sort of striking thing uh, about the war is not really how quickly support for its fates, um, but how long presidents were able to keep support for the commitment going, partly by dividing and ruling the possible constituencies that were not in favour of the conflict by that point, and and by and by manipulating the different reasons that they had for that. So you know, um, both Johnson and Nixon are able to kind of vilify the anti-war movement um, and create a link between public opposition to the conflict um, to sort of stigmatise public opposition to the conflict. By, um, by, by associating it with political and cultural radicalism, the sort of things that the, 
the bits of the anti-war movement doing, like trying to levitate the the the, the Pentagon or vote a pig in as president. Um, you know, that doing that sort of thing is a very good drawing attention to those sort of things is a very good way of making sure that many other Americans who have reservations about the conflict don't go out on the streets. Can I ask you now? about the effect on Vietnamese people of this war. Um, so the My Lai massacre is obviously one aspect of that. For those who aren't familiar, can you just outline for us what happens there? Yeah, so, so My Lai um, is located um, in a village called Song Mi, um, which is near the coast of central South Vietnam. It's just outside the, the, the sort of city of, of Wang Nai. Um, and there's quite a revolutionary presence in that, in that uh, area and that and that resulted in the deaths of, of you know some U.S. soldiers um, during kind of operations in the kind of post Tet period of the, the early months of 1968. Uh, and so on the 16th of March, 1968, um, a U.S. task force comprised of three um, infantry companies went into Somme village, um, and two of them, and they're significantly apart from each other geographically; they're about a mile apart. Somme village is a it's not a village that we might think of it clustered around a church with a kind of village store it's a it's yeah. a geographical area um so these these two companies are about a mile or so away from each other um and they both carry out massacres um and uh and in in total probably killing somewhere in the region of 350 to 500 um uh people having received very little in the way of of, of opposing fire many of the victims uh you know elderly their women their children um shot at point blank range often en masse um, in, in, in groups. There's soldiers also rape some of the, the women, which you know gives you a, uh, an indication this is not a battle. Um, uh, you know, this is four hours of, of sort of mayhem and, and slaughter. So you know that's that's the Milai massacre. It's some it's to some extent it's misnamed because Milai is just one of the, there's a sort of a, a, a subhamlet in this in the Somme village, which is the Americans call Milai Four. Um, and that's that's how it gets the name Milai Massacre. That's kind of is that not that film with Michael J. Fox? It's a truly terrible film, but it has that plot line um, that is about him being this one American soldier that's stopping other people raping this girl. I think it's been years since I saw it. And that how what are war crimes like? How prevalent are they? Um, so the the film you're thinking of, I think, is uh, Casualties of War. That's it. I think, yeah. which is actually based on a different different uh, an, a, 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 a factual case um, okay. uh, that was reported by I think the New Yorker. I may be wrong about that. Um, uh, so it's a it's a different it's a different case and it's a, a different scenario where where um, a, a small group of U.S. soldiers basically kidnap a girl from a village and and um, uh, uh, and and she was raped and, and killed, and then it's about the kind of the, the attempt to get justice for that um, uh, thereafter. It's really difficult to it's really difficult to tell. Um, so after the Milai massacre, uh, it's really difficult to tell the extent of war crimes. And and you know it, what we what I think we can say is that um, it is the situation is different in different locales and at different times, partly depending on what the war is like, but also who's in charge of it. Uh, a, ma- a lot matters. Uh, leadership matters a lot um, uh, in terms of what troops think they can get away with, what they want to do, the kind of cues that they're, the behavioural cues that they're getting from from uh, the people around them. Um, so after the the Milai massacre gets revealed, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about this anyway. In, in, in November 1969, the Nixon administration is really concerned about what this will do to in terms of. Um, public opinion and it and it sets up what's called the vietnam war crimes working group um, to try and work out whether this is unusual what other instances of these sort of um uh, uh these sort of atrocities might might come through and into the press to cause trouble for for public opinion and so that's actually one of the best resources we have is that the the investigations of this of this vietnam war crimes working group but it's we have to accept it's only the it's probably only the tip of the iceberg um, we know that there are others, um, uh, not on the scale of Milai, but on a smaller scale, there's, there's um, uh, you know, numerous instances um, of uh, killings and rapes that go to court martial. But we also know that that's, that's going to be the tip of the iceberg because most of the, most of those cases, there's no, you know, the units that are involved are not going to be reporting them. The people who are the victims of it are not going to be reporting 
this. Um, but at the same time, we had to be very careful because there's plenty of US servicemen who went through their service in Vietnam. And, and you know, we, we had to assume that they acted perfectly honorably. Yeah. Um, uh, oh. You know, so it, it's, it's, it's sort of somewhere between the two. It's not happening everywhere, but it's happening more than we really have information about. Yeah. Can I stay with what you were talking about there about kind of consequences and, and fallouts? Uh, and I'm interested in in two kind of aspects of this. One is the US domestic fallout and kind of the the reaction of people back home when this news breaks. And, and that is, you know, fundamentally what happens, that this kind of becomes uh, a moment of, of national scandal. Um, but at the same time, you've got the impact on the Vietnamese people. You know, to what extent is, is My Lai, you talk about kind of tip of the iceberg in terms of what we know about, but to what extent it, it, are these kind of experiences more mainstream or to what extent do the Vietnamese people suffer in other ways through things like the Agent Orange program and defoliation and so on? Okay, so um, yeah, really, really good question. So let, let's deal with the first, which is, you know, the United States. I mean, so the Americans don't learn about this until about 20 months after the massacre happened. There's a kind of cover up at the local level. Um, local commanders in the in the Wang Nai area know that something pretty bad happened um, uh, in Sonmi, uh, especially around the sort of settlement of, of that they called Me Lai Four. Um, uh, but rather than investigate it properly, which is going to have an impact upon their own kind of reputation as as commanders, and it's going to get very messy. You know, they cover it up. So word doesn't really reach the press um, until um, a new investigation takes place because of reports that reach the, 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 the U.S. Army um, uh, in, in sort of the spring of 1969. And it's that investigation that we start getting stories coming through the press. So Seymour Hirsch is a very famous investigative journalist, to some extent makes his name by, by following these, this, this story um, through. Um, so November 1969, this, the, the story breaks, and, it, and within about a week or so, it comprises quite a lot. It comprises news of the investigation. It comprises um, testimony from soldiers who are actually involved, some of them actually confessing to having been involved in, in um, uh, the killings there. And it also encompasses photographic evidence. So one of the soldiers who'd sort of followed the unit into My Lai, he was an army reporter, and he took photographs of, of the victims um, in colour. And he sells those to Life magazine, which is one of the kind of mainstream American publications of the um, of the period. Um, and those get shown on CBS television, those images, and and, um, uh, and they, they comprise, you know, the, the most famous images of, of the Midai massacre, you know, bodies on the ground, en masse, and, and, and so on. Um, uh, and so pretty quickly, there's compelling evidence that the, that mass killings occurred there. It's front page news. Um, the Nixon administration, as I said, is, is sort of worried. Um, but within a couple of, within a month or so, it's a, it's a little bit like, you know, the sound of crickets. Um, you know, those who are opposed to the war were already opposed to the war and therefore it's not going to shunt their opinion. Um, those who were prepared to accept Nixon's argument that, that the nation's credibility required the war to continue tended to take the view that bad things happen in war. Um, and a good many Americans, um, perhaps not paying too close attention to who had killed whom in My Lai and how, um, argued, you know, the, the, maybe the problem in the past with American policy was that it's US soldiers hadn't been doing, hadn't been tough enough. Um, and so what happens over time when, when Lieutenant William Calley, um, uh, who was in charge of, of the platoon that probably carried out the greatest portion of the killing, was, was prosecuted. Um, he actually became a hero. People sing songs about him. Um, and, and it doesn't really shift the dial of public opinion on the war. You know, if you, if you, if you look at opinion polls between, November, between sort of October 69, before the massacre revelations and sort of January 1970, it, sh it, it shifts about 1% in, in an anti-war direction. And that's pretty much consistent with the direction of travel anyway. Um, and sorry, you were you then wanted to know about Vietnam and, and um, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously the sort of an enormous amount of damage that the war does physically to to to, to Vietnam. There's you know the lives cut short, and, and it's very difficult to get figures for that, but they undoubtedly lie in the millions. We know about the disfiguring, the injuries that people um, uh, uh, suffer from. 
damage to the environment as a result of kind of chemical agents, defoliants, and, and so on. There's also just the dislocations in, in, in human patterns of, of um, being as a result of the free fire zones, which just move people out of the countryside into the cities, into refugee camps, um, drive women into prostitution to service sort of American uh, soldiers in the cities, and, and, um, and just the general sense of a society becoming increasingly dependent upon American um, uh, aid. So the kind of material effects are quite substantial, but there's also the political effects, um, which drive the kind of regimes of both the North and the South um, in different directions. And they increase. And I think you, what you see is an increasing measure of repression on both sides. Um, and the effect of that is that when the North Vietnamese finally take over, the South in 1975. It's essentially a hostile takeover by that point. It's the it's it's a, a scenario where we get education re-education camps for um, those who work for the South Vietnamese regime. A sort of exodus of sort of talent is sort of driven out of the country in stages. So we get you know refugees, um, the boat people, um, uh, and because of that kind of I, that move to a kind of more ideological position under the circumstances of, of uh, conflict, we get North Vietnam, uh, the, the, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, which is the kind of collective entity when, when unification happens, um, is very dependent uh, and reliant upon a kind of Soviet model of economic modernization until, until the 1990s, until the end of the Cold War. Um, uh, and, and, and so you know, the, the war has quite a prolonged effect in terms of the victims that it, it produces. How does it all end eventually? So during the evacuation of NATO forces from Afghanistan, we saw people drawing comparisons with the last helicopters coming out of Saigon. But how do we get to that point? Um, yeah, okay. so, so by, by 1972, the US Congress is basically threatening to pull the plug on the Vietnam War. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and that basically forces President Nixon um, to, to sort of come to terms with the North Vietnamese, um, you know, where the Americans will withdraw, um, the North Vietnamese, um, and, and, and he's accepting under that uh, agreement, the continued presence of North Vietnamese troops in South Vietnam, even as the Americans um, leave. And so there's a variety, at that point, with the kind of Paris peace settlement of early 1973, there are a variety of kind of hopes and expectations that um, accompany the, the, the sort of settlement. Perhaps South Vietnam can survive, just like South Korea um, uh, has done, um, with the peace sort of enforced by, you know, you, you help with American, American military aid or economic aid to the South Vietnamese. Um, if necessary, if the North Vietnamese violate the agreement, you can have strategic bombing um, uh, of the North. Or perhaps the best that they can hope for is what's sometimes called a decent interval. You know, you, um, South Vietnam will eventually fall, but it will be in about three or four years time, um, at which point no one will be able to make there'll be at best a dotted line between the Americans withdrawing and, and the collapse of this client um, regime. The problem with all this planning is that Watergate is about to kind of you know, um, uh, really kind of explode on the American scene and, and, and American credit, you know, American um, political consensus gets shot. Um, any hope that Nixon um, had of being able to persuade Congress to, to maintain support for the South Vietnamese regime fades. The level of aid is gradually reduced for the South Vietnamese regime. And basically, in the in in towards the end of 1974, the start of 1975, the North Vietnamese sort of seize the initiative. It's exploratory in the first instance. They they launch a, 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 an offensive in early January 1975, and what they work out pretty quickly is one, the Americans are unlikely to come in, come back in. Um, and secondly, the South Vietnamese regime is much more fragile um, than, than anyone had really sort of thought at that stage. Um, the South Vietnamese regime basically collapse, collapses in a, in, in a matter of months. Was the Vietnam, I mean, this is a, a I, I say this having spoken to you on a few occasions about this, so I, I know what you're gonna say in response to this. Uh, which is why it's a bit of a cheeky question for me, but it's a, a response that floored me the first time uh, you told me about this. Was the Vietnam War ever winnable for the USA or was it always doomed to failure? Oh, I wish I could remember what I told you because probably what I'm going to say now is going to contradict 
whatever I said back then. I think we need to think about what winnable means. Um, I mean, the war aims of the Americans are relatively clear, to my mind anyway. Um, you know, you get the insurgency, you get the communist insurgency or the nationalist insurgency in the South down to a level that the Southern government can cope with by itself. And then, then the Americans sort of leave, um, or at least you know, a substantial portion of them leave. Um, but the problem is that the, the involvement of US forces makes that harder in many ways, not easier, because it stimulates more support to come from the North. Um, and it also stimulates more support to come sort of via the North from, from the other major communist superpowers from the Soviet Union and, 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 and China. And so that, you know, the, the overall level of fighting um, increases. And it also makes, US involvement also makes the government in the South much more dependent on the US um, and actually less able then to take back the reins of fighting the war for itself. Now, by, by the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s, the Americans have sort of realized that they've made a rod for their own back um, here. And that, so the process of what's called Vietnamization um, begins, which is, you know, the idea is that you try and get the South Vietnamese trained up to do the fighting whilst the Americans keep pummeling the North with air, airstrikes. Um, but the issue with that is that it's clearly done on US timetables um, and it's not, accord, not according to kind of measured stress tests of where the South Vietnamese are in that sort of process of, of being able to cope um, for themselves. And so what you end up with in, by, by sort of late 72, 73 is that, you know, the Paris Peace Settlement is essentially a toss up. Um, a toss, they're tossing a coin. It might work out. South Vietnam, man, South Vietnam might survive. It might not. And certainly the South Vietnamese regime fears the outcome because the Americans have, have, have left, but the North Vietnamese are still in the South. Um, uh, so Vietnamization looks like an approach pointed in the kind of right direction, certainly pointed more in the right direction than the earlier search and destroy uh, strategy. But by the point that it's actually carried out, it's been carried out against the clock. Um, everyone knows that. Um, and, you know, it's it's... It's, it's difficult to sort of reach a, a point where it can actually be successful according to the timeframes of American politics, where, where by that point people want to leave. You do a lot of work on the memory of the Vietnam War, and this is still well within living memory. So how is the war remembered and talked about in both nations? I mean, I know I have one of those, you know, those... Um, is it a bracelet you can buy for a missing US serviceman? I, I kind of, I have one of those and I've looked him up and everything. Um, so there's, I mean, it is still, I mean, people's children never met their parents because or their fathers because they died in Vietnam. And also as well, like for the Vietnamese, this is, uh, this is not history, is it? Um, no. Um, I mean, memory is, is, it's a really complicated, you know, historians and, and uh, social scientists and cultural studies, um, you know, memory is a really complicated term. It, it's, it's, a, it's a big bucket of stuff. It involves individual memory, social memory, that is the kind of interactions of groups and the way in which groups kind of, um, uh, you know, organize each other's sort of thoughts on, on, um, on, on the past. Um, and that includes academic historians too and then there's sort of official memory which is kind of like the, the memory that's expressed at a kind of governmental level um, and of course all of these things are, are affected by each other um, individual memories are incredibly diverse as you can imagine um, you know at the United States in the United States you only have to sort of think about the differences that might exist between the way in which you know uh, the way in which different races might have experienced the war differently. People in different regions. The South is 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 generally the kind of the place which draw where, where most of the soldiers are drawn from, or at least it's the region that contributes most in terms of, of military personnel to, to the Vietnam War. It may have a different perception of the war than like a college town in 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 the American North. Gender makes a difference clearly. Class makes a difference. It's a working class war for the most part. You know, it's it's the it's the it's the poor who are going to fight rather than the the middle class who can get college deferments and draft deferments. Um, uh, you know, so Bush Junior does. Sorry, I'm, George uh, Bush Junior didn't he yeah. get deferment because he oh and Donald Trump too a lot politically yeah. yeah yeah and Donald Trump too. Um, you know, so there there you know it, it, there's a there's people like Dick Cheney and and you know there's a sort of generation of of, of people who uh, oversaw 
policymaking at an international level a generation later who, who you know, who didn't, who, who found ways not to fight in the Vietnam yeah. um, uh, war. Um, I mean, by the 1980s, you're starting to get, I think, in the United States, this kind of two major conformations of, of, of memory um, around kind of different narratives of the war. Um, but they both sort of involves a similar kind of argument about betrayal. Um, so there's the, the, the kind of anti-war memory, which is a generation betrayed by leaders who sort of um, uh, pulled a generation into sort of fighting an unnecessary war in, in Vietnam. Um, and then there's the kind of what we might call the more kind of right wing or military memory of, of, uh, uh, of a generation of soldiers who are betrayed by leaders who refused to do what was necessary to win the war. Um, uh, uh, you know, whose fight, whose heart was not in the fight, or, or the, who were betrayed, that generation was betrayed by an anti-war press or an anti-war um, uh, movement. An official memory, government-expressed memory, is often sort of kind of triangulate between those two confirmations. Um, uh, it's tried to sort of honour the sacrifice of those who fought, whilst also acknowledging the perception of many Americans that the Vietnam War was not a war that needed to be for it wasn't a war of necessity. Um, but of course, added to this, we also have the fact that there's quite a lot of South Vietnamese in the United States as well. They come over in 1975 and, and in, in subsequent years, and we're starting to um, having to really kind of deal with, with that presence within American culture and the way it's been to some extent that ignored. Um, there's a great there's a great novel that came out a couple of years ago by Noyan Van um, Than called The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's about a kind of South Vietnamese exile um, in the United States, and it's um, and it's been it's it's really kind of incredible when you teach students, when you, you you get students to read that novel and they realise there's this whole other thing that they they haven't thought about. I mean to go on to Vietnam and and um, you know mem memories of the conflict initially are very kind of strongly disciplined by the official ideology of the Socialist Republic of, of, of Vietnam, which kind of emphasizes the heroism of the struggle um, as a battle against kind of capitalism and imperialism and, and, and so on. But it's very uncomfortable with encouraging the sort of individual acts of mourning and memory um, that, that local communities and local families may want to engage with, because it's still a kind of officially atheistic regime, mm. and a lot of these acts involve thinking about kind of ghosts and spirits and religion and, and, uh, and, uh, and so on. Um, so that's, that's a kind of complicating factor. There's a whole kind of buried experience of the war and experience of, of the sort of memory of the war that, that the official ideology doesn't really reflect. Um, and then we get the kind of opening up of, of, of Vietnam in the, um, in the 1990s, where a whole new set of kind of issues um, emerge. There's money to be made from American backpackers. There's money to be made from yeah. nostalgic um, uh, American veterans, but you don't necessarily want to lecture them on war crimes. Um, yeah. And so we sort of end up with this kind of weird regression to, to the sort of wartime dislocations where the power of American money overwrites the memory or the, the sort of memory discourse of the, the Vietnamese state, which in turn has overwritten the private suffering of, of, of Vietnamese civilians. Um, but there is some scope for these sort of transactions to be more hopeful and more thoughtful. And I think that's, that's um, uh, important. I remember looking through the visitor's book at the, the, the My Lai Memorial. Um, yeah. uh, and this is something I kind of quote in my, um, in, in my book. Um, and it's, it's, it's a sort of entry from a, a visitor who came from Seattle um, and it's written in December in 2003, um, the first year of the sort of second Gulf war and he posted a, a photograph of, of uh, two sleeping grandchildren into the book and he wrote um when i think of the atrocities that took place here i think of um them those who died here were the great future of this beautiful country uh, while it is said that we learn from history i doubt for once again we are in turmoil and i think that's a really it, it shows that somebody has been to the country and it's and, and has experienced a, a sort of a memory site and it's and, and is beginning to think differently um, and in quite complicated ways about what this what this means, how far we can learn from it. Kendrick, I always can guarantee that when somebody from Southampton comes on, they're going to knock it out of the park. And I'm not even saying that from a position of bias as a Southamptonian. Um, <laughs> genuinely, this is why I love kind of calling on people from the department to, to come and 
talk to us because you just blow us away with not only the history, but also the eloquence with which you put this stuff across. And again, I'm not even saying that because you're one of my bosses. Um, so thank you so <laughs> you much. You never like that for me. <laughs> I just organise your life for you, Alex. Yeah, this that's, is true. That's the you're chief of staff. No, it was brilliant. It's finally on History Hack, we've had a great overview of the Vietnam War to tell people why it happened and who was there and what they were doing and what their aims were. Um, we've done some specific battle things, but we've not yet done this. So thank you very much. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much for your questions. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.